Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. We're in the middle of a series of lessons looking chronologically at the life of Jesus Christ, and we're in Luke 13 today. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to be opening to Luke chapter 13. And I want to start by asking a question, and that is simply this. What is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of God like? And I ask this question because Jesus asks this question here in Luke chapter 13. He says, to what can I compare the kingdom of God? And Jesus asked this question on the heels of another incredible miracle that we read about beginning in Luke chapter 13 and verse 10. Jesus, in this account, heals a woman who had what Scripture calls a disabling spirit. And this spirit had tormented this woman for 18 years, so much so that she could not straighten herself up. She was hunched over, she was bent over, and that was her existence for 18 years. And you might not think much about this infirmity, but I want you to consider the implications of such a disease. She was unable to perform simple everyday tasks that you and I would take for granted because of her condition, because of this disabling spirit. No doubt social relationships were either non-existent or at very least a challenge. Not to mention this either, that the effect of this posture, uh, that that effect would have had so much uh, more damage on other organs in the body and it would have made her suspect to a whole lot of other health issues as well. She spent most of her time looking down at the ground. She was not able to look people in the eye, not able to look up and see what was going on all around her. And so Jesus lays his hands on her, and this disability is removed. Uh, She was unable to stand up, but yet after Jesus, she stands up for the first time in 18 years. And in turn, what does she do? She glorifies God. It's an amazing miracle that we read about here. And you need to know something here in this story. You need to know that everyone in this city knew about this woman. Everyone knew about her situation. She was not a stranger here in this town. She was the one everyone stared at. She was the one whose little children would say, what happened to her, mommy? Just a little too loud, right? For mom's comfort. This is someone everyone knew. But there's a problem in what Jesus does. Well, at least there's a problem for one person. Scripture says that Jesus performs this miracle on the Sabbath day, and the ruler of the synagogue is not happy at all. I want you to notice his response in verse 14. Luke chapter 13, verse 14, he says this, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And we look at his response and we say, what a jerk. How could he not, how could he not recognize what's going on in front of him? But don't, don't dismiss what he's saying quite so quickly. Let's try to understand what he's saying. You see, her illness is a chronic one, right? She has been suffering with this for 18 years. She is not acutely ill, and she is in no danger of dying. 
Sabbath laws prohibit travel on the Sabbath, so she, she and Jesus will be in town when the Sabbath ends. And in his mind, the purpose of the Sabbath is to honor God, so why can't Jesus honor God by keeping the Sabbath holy, free from work, and heal this woman once the Sabbath has ended? That's his question, and, and really, it's a valid one. I mean, if the healing were to be delayed for a few hours, the Sabbath would be honored and this woman would be healed, killing two birds with one stone. His argument makes a little bit of sense, does it not? And I want to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. I really do. He holds a position of responsibility. He's trying to uphold what he thinks is right. He's trying to understand and uphold what he thinks it means when the Sabbath is called holy. But here is where he fails to understand something. And dare I say, this is where many of us fail to understand as well. You see, what he fails to understand and what we often fail to understand is simply this. Acts of compassion, they are the very definition of holiness. Acts of compassion are holy. This man, because of his position, cannot see that. He cannot understand that. But acts of compassion are holy. And what's sad to me is this man seems to be hiding behind the Torah. He, he tries to uh, use the Torah as a reason to not bring healing to this woman. The Torah, which was given to reveal God's will, has become a veil over this man's eyes, and so he can no longer see clearly. You know where I'm going next, right? I wonder how many times do we do the same thing with the Word of God. We use it as a veil so that we can't see clearly what's going on around us and maybe not help the people that are around us. Jesus uses some pretty sharp language to rebuke this ruler, doesn't he? He calls him a hypocrite. Let's read verses 15 through 17, and we'll see this here in Luke chapter 13 might help if I actually turn to Luke 13. <clears throat> Verse 15 says this. Then he, the Lord answered him, You hypocrite, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. The hypocrisy of the synagogue leader in Jesus' mind has to do with his inconsistency. And I think we would do well to listen in to what Jesus says to him. You see, the leader of the, leader of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, believes that the Torah permits helping an animal on the Sabbath but he doesn't recognize that that same law prohibits, he thinks that same law prohibits him from helping a person. I can lead an animal to water, but I can't help this woman in the middle of an 18-year battle with Satan. The leader believes that it's acceptable to free the animal that has been confined for a few hours, but he believes it's unacceptable to free a woman who has been bound for 18 years. And Jesus calls out his double standard. He says, you do one thing yourself, and yet you want to stop me from doing something which is no different, dare I say, even more appropriate. Jesus says, why don't you understand? Why do you get the point about untying the animal, and why can't you see that all I'm doing is untying, I am freeing this woman from her bondage? 
But the main point of all of this is something I don't want us to miss. Jesus is doing for this woman what he wanted to do for all of Israel. This is the point of this section of Scripture. Jesus is doing for her what he's been longing to do for all of Israel, the enemy, the accuser. Satan has had Israel in his power for all these years, and Jesus' kingdom message is the one thing that can free her. It's the one thing that can heal her. But Israel's insistence on its tight boundaries, including this rigid application of Scripture, is preventing it from happening. Jesus knows that unless the kingdom message heals all of Israel, that there is no hope for them. The religious leaders are shamed by Jesus' words and actions, and yet the people rejoice. I find that interesting. What Jesus does next is he uses this as a platform. He uses it as an opportunity to answer that question we began with. What is the kingdom of God like? Now, based on the account of the ruler of the synagogue and this woman, we can know some things for sure. First and foremost, we know that the kingdom of God is not about rules and regulations. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you. That doesn't mean that there are no rules and regulations, but it does mean that the rules and regulations are not given to limit us, they are given to free us. You see, we don't hide behind our Bibles as a reason not to help people in need. No, we are freed by God to be about the business of our King. And remember that all of the law is summed up in two things. Remember what it was? Love God, love people. There's your rules and regulations in the kingdom of God. Love God, love people. Because if you love God, you're going to do what he says. If you love people, you're going to serve them. You're going to honor them. You're going to do what you can to help people in need. Those are our rules and regulations. But Jesus is not done telling us about the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says next, verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And so that leads us to this second answer to what is the kingdom of God like? Well, the kingdom of God starts small, but it grows. The kingdom of God starts small, but it grows. Never underestimate the influence that a few people can make simply living out their faith. Never underestimate your influence that you can have at school, the influence that you can have wherever you work, the influence that you can have in your family. Never underestimate just a few people standing up for what they believe. It makes a difference. So, do you want the kingdom of God to take root in your own heart and in your child's heart, then plant seeds by your words and your actions. Start living out your faith more vibrantly every single day. Let your actions line up with your words. Get excited about coming together as a church family with your brothers and sisters. Make it a priority above all else. Throw out those mustard seeds and watch as the kingdom of God begins to take root and grow. You want to see the kingdom of God be the center of your marriage? Then plant seeds. Plant those seeds by your words and actions. Start by changing your language. Speak words of love. Speak words of affirmation into your relationship. But don't just say it. Do it. Invest in each other. Serve together. Be about the Lord's business together. And watch. 
Watch as that begins to impact not only your relationship, but the impact the other relationships around you. You want the kingdom of God to be coming here in this place with power at church? Then plant those seeds, those mustard seeds by your words and actions. Don't just come to be served. Come to serve. Get involved. Plug in. Love people. I mean really, really love people. We have opportunities all around us to bring healing to the lives of people in need. And so reach into the lives of people around you, especially the lives of those who are far from Jesus Christ. And you may not see results instantly. That's okay because the kingdom of God starts small but then it grows. And one day, there is going to be a tree that's going to be big enough to give shade to everyone. One day, the whole lump of bread will be leavened. But until then, we keep planting seeds. We keep working the bread. And let me say this too. When Jesus sows the seed of the kingdom, brother, never mind. When Jesus sows the seed of the kingdom, nobody knows what's going to result from that, right? The kingdom as a small helping of leaven hidden in the flower may seem insignificant, but it doesn't take long before it begins to impact everything. Think back to the story of the healing. It's significant, right? It doesn't appear to be. It's simply one person that Jesus heals from a disease that she's had for 18 years. It doesn't seem like it's all that big a deal, but listen, every time you break the chains that have people tied up, that's significant, And every time that you do that, another victory is won, which is going to go on having more and more and more results in the lives of people every time you help someone break the chains that are binding them, chains of addiction, chains of failure, chains of financial difficulties, whatever those chains may be, every time we help people break those, another victory is won, and and, and more impact is going to continue to be had. The kingdom of God, it starts small but it grows. And finally, number three, in the kingdom of God, and this kind of goes along with number two, uh, but in the kingdom of God, it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. Just so happens my son is here today. I always love it when he comes home from college. But in Clay's last year of high school, I warned him that this was coming, and so he's, I don't know if he's okay with it, but it's going to happen anyway. (laughs) In Clay's last year of high school, his basketball coach, who was also the cross-country coach, encouraged him for the first time ever to run cross-country. He said, said, Clay, it would be great. It'll help you get in shape for the upcoming season, and it might prove to be something that you love to do. It wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't. Clay did it because he loved Coach Marshall. Uh, He did it to get in shape for basketball season, but it was certainly not something he was thrilled to do. Now, I had never been to a cross-country race before, and so when the first race arrived, I went with Clay uh, to this meet that they had uh, somewhere in Moulton around a mountain. It It was insane. When you showed up, I mean, there was thousands, literally thousands of people everywhere, tents about this school and that school. I mean, it was, a, it was a spectacle. When we got there, there were already some races that were going on, and, and whew, it, was, it was something. I didn't know where to stand. I didn't know what I was doing, but it was fun to be there. The meet that Clay ran in, there's a couple hundred runners, maybe a hundred, and so when the they all gathered in one place. There wasn't really a starting line, so to speak, where they, there wasn't, there's just too many of them, right? And so there he is. He's in the near the front of the line. The, the thing goes off. The gun goes off, and he starts running, and he's running. 
I mean, he's out in front. The first 100 yards, dude's winning the race. I'm like, this is awesome. He might win this thing, right? And so he's out running. And well, then, you know, they go around where you can't see him anymore, and you just got to stand there and wait and wait and wait. About 16 minutes later, here comes another runner. That's not Clay. I guess he didn't win. And 17 minutes, that's a really good score I've come to know, by the way. Three miles is what you run. 17 minutes, 18 minutes, 19 minutes. There's like 12 runners by. I'm like, okay, um, what's going on here? 20 runners, 30 runners, right? Clay ran his race in about, oh, a little over 20 minutes, which was a pretty good time for someone who'd never done it before, but he was nowhere near winning the race because it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. So can I say something to you today? You may have started well, but I know you. I've been with you a while now. Some of you have lost your spark. Some of you have lost your fire. You started well, but you've lost your spark. And now your relationship with Jesus, can I say it's strained? Or maybe it's been reduced to what we do here on Sunday and that's it. I just want to remind you that you can change that right now. That you can regain the fire that you once had. You can recover the passion. In the name of Jesus, you can. Because it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. And I've heard stories of some of you this morning. I've heard stories of what you used to do. I've heard stories of great faithfulness in this fellowship. Stories of the encouragement that you gave to the people around you. Stories of engagement with other people. Stories of amazing building projects that the whole community was interested in. Stories about fellowship. Stories that every one of you sitting here today who's been with us for any length of time looks back and remembers, but where are you now? It's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. What are you, where are you in the kingdom of God now? Now, I'm not saying any of this to guilt you. I'm trying to light a new fire. I, I want you to recover the passion that you've lost. I want to give you a new spark in your walk with the Lord. Yes, times are different than they were then. Yes, you're in a different place than you were then. But that doesn't mean we quit. What that means is we have new opportunities to serve and use our talents in a different way. Because it's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. And some of you are thinking, my time's passed. Somebody else needs to step up and do that now. That's true. There does need to be more people step up and do some things. But you don't get to quit. Because it's not about how you start. You can be winning the race the first month. But are you going to finish strong? Are you going to finish well? Others of you, if I can, we're just going to be honest today. Is that okay? Others of you, you're on cruise control. You're on cruise control. You don't have a lot of direction. You're not sure what to do when it comes to growing your faith. Maybe you don't even know how or if you even want to. You know you can be more. You know you can give more. You know you can do more. But you've settled for what you've become. I just want to remind you, you can be set free. You can be untied from that life 
you can choose right now to live a life of purpose. You can choose right now to turn off cruise control and get your motor running, heading out on the highway, looking for adventure in this church. You can get revved up right now for the things of Jesus Christ because it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. Starting's important. Please don't misunderstand. We all have to start somewhere, but it's about how you finish, not how you start. Some of you... You have a history. You have a history of bad decisions. You have a history of poor choices, and those choices, they haunt you. I've made some of those myself. Now, some of your choices have led to prison sales. Others of you have made some choices that have led you to a prison of your own making in your own mind. I just want to remind you that our Savior is a chain-breaking Savior, and He can break the chains, and He can cause you to become what He wants you to be, because it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. And believe it or not, there may be some people here who are thinking, surely not here, but maybe there are some who are thinking, well, you know, if it's about how I finish, well, then I can just, I can stay on cruise control a little longer. And when I get to the end of my life, maybe then I'll start to think about reconnecting or recommitting or, or, or maybe later after I've done what I want to do for a while, then, then I'll get on board. Then I'll do that later, later, later. And my question to you is simply this, why in the world? Why in the world would you miss out on the benefits of the kingdom of God for another second? And if you think that what the world offers is anywhere close to what Jesus offers, we need to talk. Why would you miss out on the benefits of the kingdom of God for one more second? My guess is some of you here today have tried what the world offers and it's left you wanting. But yet you keep running back to it. You keep thinking that it's going to give you what it can never deliver. And some of you are still holding back from Jesus, not wanting to go all in, not wanting to change. And I just say, why? Why? That's my first question. But my second response comes from Scripture. I want you to look at how Jesus answers this in Luke chapter 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And whence the man- when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I don't know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God, And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Jesus is asked, how many are going to be saved? And Jesus, in typical rabbi form, doesn't answer that question directly. He's not about to give statistics and figures. But what he does give, instead of an answer, is a warning. And it's a warning that I want to give to every single one of you here. You see, Jesus is holding open the gate of the kingdom, and he's urging people to enter in. The door isn't very wide, and it's going to take some energy, and it's going to take some commitment to get in. 
The kingdom of God is not something you accidentally stumble into. One day, and not very long from now, Jesus is telling them that the door is going to be shut, and all who have not come into the kingdom are going to be left out. And for his original audience, Jesus is saying that God is giving Israel one last chance through the work of Jesus Christ, but he is the final messenger. That is his message to Israel. If you refuse Jesus, there will be no further opportunity. If you don't respond to Jesus' call, they will pull down on themselves judgment that they deserved. And sadly, we see that judgment come in A.D. 70 when Israel is wiped off, wiped out by Rome. They didn't heed the warning. And so, yes, Jesus' message has a specific context and meaning to the original people that he was speaking to, but... I think he's also saying something to us. And while we should be cautious about trying to apply this text to the larger question of eternal salvation, this warning was aimed at them, and it has a particular uh, emergency that they face, but there's still things that you and I can learn from it. And here's what I think we need to learn. The entrance into the kingdom of heaven is still narrow. All roads do not lead to heaven. If all roads lead to heaven, then why in the world did Jesus have to die? All roads don't lead to heaven. There is one entrance and only one entrance, and Jesus Christ is the door to the kingdom. He's not one of many doors. He's not one of many ways. He is the only way to the kingdom, and if you continue to reject him, you are rejecting the only chance that you have to find eternal life. The door is still narrow. A second truth we need to learn, we still have to strive to enter in. Please don't misunderstand. We are saved by grace through faith. We do not trust in our work to save us. We trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that there is no effort required on our parts. We still must strive to walk in step with Jesus to the praise and honor and glory of his name. We strive to bring others with us into the kingdom of God. We strive to create a community where Jesus is praised and needs are met. We strive to make all of our lives, every single part of it, work life, home life, school life, all of life, a walking testimony of the power of Jesus Christ. And that takes effort. Number three, we, we still trust the master to determine who's in and out. Did you catch that? Who shut the door? You? Them? No, master shut the door. You see, it's not up to us. In fact, Later, we're going to find one of Jesus' most stinging rebukes that he gives to these religious leaders. And you want to know why he rebuked them? Because they took on the role of God and shut the door of the kingdom to people. And Jesus says, that's not your role. Jesus is the one who will determine who's in and out. Our job is to point people to him as long as the breath of life is in our bodies. So give away and give up the need to be someone's judge and trust Jesus to do that work. Your work is to love people into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Now, does that mean that people can do whatever they want and we never speak up, we never speak out? Does that mean that we never call out sin? Of course it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that we do it with the right spirit, 
that we do it with the right motive and we do it out of those rules and regulations that God gave us. Love him and love people. And finally, the fourth lesson that this teaches us is all we long. We long for the day when all will be gathered at the table. Did you read that? From north, south, east, and west, all will be gathered at the table of the kingdom of God. We long for the day when that will happen. Can you imagine what that will be like? Can you imagine? What a day. What a day. And listen, you don't want to miss that. Because if you miss that, you miss everything. What happens next in Luke chapter 13 is a moving and emotional moment in Jesus' life. He says in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stoned those who sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you weren't willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a loaded, loaded passage. But I just want to say this. Jesus' desire remains the same. Jesus' desire today is just as it was then to gather people under his wings. And he is crying out to you this morning. He is calling you by name this morning. And the question is, are you going to take him up on his offer or are you going to continue to reject him like Israel until it's too late? Or are you going to come to him and are you going to find true and abundant life in him? Because that's the only place it's found. But you have a choice to make about what you're going to do with Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you today grateful that you are an incredibly amazing God who loves us so much, even when we don't deserve it, you love us so much so that you sent your son to die for us, and we are overwhelmed at the knowledge of this love, but sometimes, Father, we, we just lose sight of it. We lose sight of it, and we begin to act in ways that are contrary to your kingdom, and I just pray, I pray for this body of believers right here today, that if that's us, that we right now will repent of those things, and that we will lay them at your feet, and we will go all in again with you, Father. And for those who have never uh, come to understand who you are, who've never given their lives to you, or who have given their lives to you and then walked away, I pray today is a day people will come back or will come to you for the first time, that they will find the eternal life that you're offering in your son. God, revive us again as we sing. Revive our hearts to be about your business, not our own. Revive us to, to make a difference in the communities that we live in. Revive us uh, to, to serve in new ways. And revive us to, to, to tell more people and to invite more people into this amazing relationship that you offer to everyone who will but trust and obey. God, we love you today. We thank you for the kingdom of God. And we long for the day when we get to sit at table with you, along with all of those believers from all over this world, what a day that will be. God, we look for it with eager anticipation, and we praise you today for making it possible for us to be able to sit at the table with you. God, we love you, and we just thank you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, 
will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.